This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, December 7th, 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. Lame duck congresses are a regular source of mischief. It's the longest possible time before another election, and many of your colleagues' votes could be easier to get after they, well, you know, lost. Jonathan Bidlack of the R Street Institute details this lame duck session that's coming at the end of a stunning spending streak by the president. Based on where we are in a calendar, uh, particularly an electoral calendar, we can have reasonable expectations about how Congress is going to behave. So we just had an election. Uh, The new Congress has not taken office yet. Uh, And then there's this window, the lame duck period. What What do we typically see with regard to spending during a lame duck period? Well, let me answer it this way. I mean, what do you think we're likely to see when we have um, a bunch of elected officials who just took office uh, or were reelected and they don't have two years until uh, minimum until their next election? Um, you know, you have an environment where where there's a complete lack of accountability. You are the furthest away from the next flashpoint of accountability, your next election. And so that moment in time is the opportunity to do things that if you want to think positively, uh, maybe where there's the, uh, you know, the political will to uh, otherwise wouldn't be there. Um, but it's also the opportunity to do things that there might not be, might not actually go and be uh, approved by your constituencies. And so historically, the lame duck period, while we like to talk about it, sort of making it easier to do some of the good things, tends to be the time that it's also the easiest to do a lot of the bad things. And so it tends to be that time when we when we end up going and seeing the biggest of the big spending bills uh, coming down the pike. And this comes at the end of, well, I don't even want to call it the end. We're just two years through uh, term one, possibly, of a Biden administration. And President Biden is committed to spending hundreds of billions of dollars for uh, student debt relief that Congress never approved um, and is also with regard to other spending kind of off the rails even though even though we say that and that's always true it seems especially egregious right now yeah i mean i think the charitable term is unprecedented and how you interpret whether that's a good or bad thing i guess depends on your on your view on the issues and uh, and and the things that he's been spending on but you know the the underappreciated part of the trump presidency is that he spent a lot i mean he spent more than anyone had before in in the last 2 years of his presidency and of course a lot of this was driven by covid but a lot of it was not you know there were there were massive increases for example in the Pentagon's budget. Um, but Trump kicked into motion, according to uh, you know, official CBO estimates, something like $3.3 trillion in new spending that wouldn't have occurred otherwise. Um, and now, you know, you have President Biden coming into office and his first two years. And of course, we're we're at a later you know, point in the uh, in the pandemic as well. So perhaps some of that spending on, on COVID is, is less justified than it, than it was two years ago. But we have President Biden now spending even even more uh, in those two years than Trump did in his last two. And, you know, it's a it's a it's sort of an inconvenient topic that uh, nobody really wants to hear because 
you know, if you're a Republican, you don't want to talk about the fact that Donald Trump was the the biggest spender and massively blew up the national debt even before COVID. Um, and if you're a Democrat, well, you approve of a lot of the spending that President Biden has been doing. And so you don't really want to talk about that aspect of the Trump legacy either and and the ways in which Joe Biden has been continuing the Trump, the Trump legacy during his first two years in office with respect to the nation's finances. So what are we likely to see uh, by the end of this lame duck session? You mean besides continued inflation? <laughs> well, I mean, uh, what I, I guess I guess I mean uh, big ticket items yeah. that uh, Congress doesn't want to feel accountable for. Sure. So, I mean, the, the biggest thing is, you know, obviously we have the appropriations process, the so-called regular order. Uh, Congress never goes and and you know works on the appropriations in the way that they are theoretically supposed to, which is to you know take up or down votes on twelve individual bills, uh, and so it's sort of become the norm to go and roll those in together into an omnibus and. That that omnibus typically happens this time of year. Um, the the uh, you know so right now we have the government essentially being funded through December sixteenth based on the last continuing resolution that President Biden signed, uh, and at the end of September. And so uh, the, the one open question right is what does the what does the next funding bill look like to avert a government shutdown? Uh, that will be likely one of two things. It will either be that omnibus that I talked about. Or it will just be a continuing resolution that continues the current levels of spending through through the next year. Uh, you know there are pluses and minuses again for to each of those options depending on your on your perspective. But that's the most immediate thing. Beyond that, we have uh, other things as well that have not been addressed. I mean, the National Defense Authorization Act, which essentially sets the Pentagon's budget for the next year, has also not been approved. Uh, and so that is also being worked on by by Congress. Uh, and that will take a lot of work. And of course, that's a huge amount of spending. I mean, there's, you know, there, there, the, one of the proposals literally is now up to $850 billion, which is just mind boggling if you really think about it, that we're closing in on a trillion dollars a year for uh, for the Pentagon's budget. And so, you know, there's even talk now among Democrats of rolling together an omnibus and, you know, the NDAA, which uh, reminds me of a, a comment that, you know, Justin Amash made years ago that if, if Congress could, they would just take one vote a year up or down to uh, uh, to do everything that they want to do. And then there would be no accountability. And it does seem like in the lame duck, we're moving in that direction. Uh, and then there are other things too. I mean, you know, the debt ceiling uh, will need to be raised uh, next year. And that's not necessarily, that's still a ways away. But of course, Democrats are worried that they're not going to be able to go and get that increase, uh, you know, in the future. And so they'd rather go and try to, you know, quote, deal with that now in the in the lame duck when they still have a Democratic majority. So it's possible we'll see that on the horizon. And and then there's a whole host of other things that, you know, aren't even necessarily fiscally related. I mean, we've seen the, you know, the the, the vote on, on same-sex mar- same sex marriage. We have, um, you know, uh, attempts to reform the Electoral Count Act. So there's all of these other kind of things, too, that are also there in addition to the, these big fiscal packages. How do Republicans with a straight face talk about fiscal responsibility at this point? Like in in general, Uh, because I can't imagine, I know individual members of Congress say, hey, we need to worry about debt. I know Rand Paul pivoted uh, in his election night uh, victory immediately back to debt and spending. Uh, But broadly speaking, uh, Republicans have 
lost whatever mantle they might have claimed to be able to be the spokesman for fiscal responsibility. It, it is funny how that works, isn't it? Uh, but of course, you know, Republicans have been in this position before. I mean, at the end of, of George W. Bush's second term in office, they had arguably lost a lot of credibility on fiscal issues, and that didn't stop them from opposing the sort of, you know, big new spending packages that President Obama proposed when he first came into office. And in fact, that was what, you know, gave rise to the Tea Party movement on the right, and at least nominally a lot of concern about, about the rise in spending and the debt. So to some degree, I don't know that the, uh, you know, the irony will uh, necessarily get in the way here and, and it will stop them from from doing what may be in their in their political self-interest. I, I do think there is this interesting question, though, as to whether or not the current moment, even though we will have, you know, a Democratic president and Republicans having control of the House um, is really analogous to what it was when, uh, you know, uh, uh, the, the Tea Party wave happened right in, in 2010. I mean, if you look at the infrastructure package as one example uh, that was, you know, signed by President Biden last year, that bill, uh, you know, w- would spend or would, would set in motion basically $200 billion uh, in spending more than what President Obama, Obama's stimulus package did back in, in the early 2010s. And um, so so no one really seems to be worked up about that, though, in quite the same way. In fact, you know, the, the recent infrastructure bill is, is basically talked about as a, a compromised bipartisan piece of legislation, which setting aside, you know, what what uh, good infrastructure spending looks like, it does seem like there really isn't the same level of, uh, you know, just getting worked up about it, not you know, by the general press, but also even by Republicans. Republicans just don't seem to care as much about it as they do, uh, as they did, you know, 10, 15 years ago. And why is that? Is is it just that we're we've just become uh numb to ever increasing spending and deficits? I think that's part of it. I also think that, you know, the to some degree the Overton window has changed and you know it it it's it's hard to go and I guess talk about this without talking about or discussing what I would say is the elephant in the room, which is Donald Trump. I mean, you know, President Trump, again, you know, he ran not uh, on sort of the traditional Republican issues. You know, he was not Paul Ryan saying we need to reform Social Security, Medicare and entitlements. I mean, in fact, he ran on the exact opposite platform, which is that I'm not going to go and, and do anything to uh, to fix these programs. And so I think that to some degree, what had been the traditional conservative position uh, has basically moved. And, and if you look at where a lot of the, uh, you know, groups on the right are on a lot of these issues, frankly, they don't seem to care much either. I mean, for a lot of the bluster that you hear from organizations like the Club for Growth or the Heritage Foundation, it doesn't seem like spending or or budget policy or fiscal conservatism rises to the same level as some of the more immediate culture war type of issues. And so, uh, again, like we can debate, you know, which came first, the chicken or the egg here, I guess. But but it, it, it generally speaking seems like both among the broader Republican base, but also the elites, um, they're just seems to be less interest in in those positions. People who uh, care about debt and federal spending are, I guess, used to the fact that so much of the federal budget is on autopilot. And uh, more recently, we've seen pretty naked attempts, I think, by uh, presidents of both parties to engage in a lot of spending without any congressional input whatsoever. Now, it's one thing for Congress to put things on autopilot. Their votes were taken at some point. 
uh, on, but on these uh, executive orders where spending is the key uh, element, uh, the White House, White Houses are just trying to do it on their own. Yeah. And, you know, that's been one of the most pernicious, I think, elements of the Biden administration's spending binge is that it's not just that, you know, yes, the, the president has been signing uh, and enacting a lot of legislation that has been approved by by Congress. Right. That that always happens. But there are a number of things that have been happening via executive order that also have significant budgetary implications and to a degree that's that's much greater than has happened in the past. And so, you know, the, the most prominent among those is the, uh, the you know, the recent uh, forgiveness of student loans, which, you know, the most recent pause, I think, has been estimated to cost something like 40 billion dollars. But then, you know, the forgiveness beyond that is, you know, has a, a, a cost in the hundreds of billions of dollars. And and then that is on top of, uh, you know, the, the CBO a couple months ago went and uh, put out a, a well, responded to a request from Republicans about the cost of President Biden's various uh, uh, executive actions. And they found that the cost of the just the ones that they reviewed, I think it was in June of, of this year, uh, you know, was on the order of over five hundred billion dollars. And so that doesn't even touch on the most recent student loan thing. So, you know, right there, you've got literally another trillion dollars in addition to a spending record that is already greater than um you know the uh, uh you know what he's what he's done uh, you know, together in concert with with congress and that's that's really unfortunate and it opens up a whole other can of worms beyond the budgetary uh the budgetary issues because as you point out there's there's this this uh question of sort of the balance between executive power and legislative power and in a sense you have the legislative branch just further ceding the power of the purse um over to over to the Biden administration and this is something that you know unfortunately both parties love to play politics with when we know when when President Trump was playing shenanigans with the border wall and trying to repurpose, uh, you know, uh, uh, funding for the Pentagon to to build the border wall. You had Democrats up in arms over that, and rightfully so, because it was a complete power grab, regardless of your feelings on the policy. But now you have the burden on the other side where you have President Biden coming and saying, you know, I'm going to go and do this stuff by executive order. And now a lot of those same Democrats tend not to care. So it's, uh, you know, such as politics, I guess. But why do it when you have both houses of Congress? I mean, you know, look, I mean, to do just about anything these days, especially when you have a, a majority that's as narrow as the Democrats have had and, and in the Senate, you almost always have to have some level of bipartisan support. Uh, and so so that's, I think, one part of the picture. Um, the other is just that, you know, look, I mean, there is there is still a lot of disagreement within the two the two conferences or caucuses. And so, um, you know, even though Democrats may have that majority, right, I mean, you also have to have the support of Joe Manchin or, or you know, Senator Sinema, for example. And so um, I do think that there is still some level of a check going on, even within within the parties. And, you know, we know that there's a lot of diversity on the Republican side when you talk about a lot of these issues, too. And so um, so, you know, just because that the Democrats have had that majority and that majority has allowed them to enact a lot of big spending policies over the last two years, it doesn't mean that they're able to do that on everything. And so I think that's a uh, you know that's a big part of it, and then and then the last part is just it's again I think um, sometimes it's easier to do things via executive action, right? Or or maybe you don't think that the Supreme Court will ultimately uphold the constitutionality of these particular actions, but it's a way to take an action that signals to 
larger base and doesn't jeopardize the electoral viability of the members in your party in Congress. So there's a there's a lot of uh, things at play here, I think, to determine whether or not uh, things are happening via executive order or via the legislative process. Jonathan Bidlack directs the governance program at the R Street Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast on your podcast platform of choice and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 